As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes adult film stars, and yes, sportsman drag racing. Big Jed, a little under the weather, taking one for the team, fighting through today. Yeah, Luke, I'm battling, man. I am battling. I'm in the trenches, giving it all I got. I'm, uh, I'm Tamiflu'd up, and uh, you know I've got cough syrup in me. It's kind of got me a little groggy, but something about this show just has me super excited, so I'm alert and ready to talk sportsman drag racing. No worries, folks. No worries. We're recording this intro on the back end. It got a little punchy at times, Big Jed. You're in, you're in rare form. Oh yeah, yeah, a little punchy. I uh, when anytime I'm uh, you know got medicine head, uh, I get a little feisty and I get a little out there. So I apologize in advance if you hear something stupid, and they probably probably will. That's a given. Completely sober between the two of us, but Tamiflu helps. Tamiflu helps. Yes, we've got does. a we've got a big show, Big Jed. A, a lot to get to. We go in a lot of different directions. We NHRA crown the the Summit ET Series World Champions. We talk about that. The Lucas Oil Series has got a little bit more clarity with two events left. We go through all of the potential scenarios and all of the sportsman categories. We talk electric vehicles. Get into a pretty deep discussion there. Talked a little bit about my man Smoke. Tony Stewart, top alcohol dragster, um, a timing system reckoning. Could that be on the horizon? We go there and we play a a little OG million dollar race game, Big Jed. Where should it go? Where will it go in 2023? All that and much more. But first, Pete Jizzle for Rizzle.
been waiting for. This here is that moment to go green, hit the tree. And Big Jed, the NHRA Camping World Series made its way to Las Vegas last weekend. We got one man that got his 50th NHRA national event win. Obviously, we crowned winners across several classes. Lucas Oil Series points chases got a little bit more clarity. Um, some dude named Tony Stewart ran top alcohol dragster. I guess we got to talk about that a little bit. He showed up. But the biggest story, at least as it pertains to us and, and what we like to talk about, NHRA Crown Summit Super Series ET World Champions in Las Vegas. Let's kick things off there. Yeah, Luke, that's a great place for us to start Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast because, uh, you know, this is a once a year thing for these racers. So I'm glad we're going to start with them. You know, the, the Summit Super Series or Summit Series World Championship, everybody goes out to Vegas and they race their respective category for their respective division. It's really a cool thing. And once again, I've seen nothing but props to NHRA for rolling out the red carpet for all the racers that traveled so far that fought all year to get there. So kudos to NHRA for once again, treating everyone like Kings and Queens. That's really cool. Luke, let's start in the super pro category where division three's Carl Keel got it done and no pun intended. It's K E I L, but he was on Keel. Uh, Carl making some pretty good laps. Um, Really hit the tree well, and I uh, got by Division Two's Brendan George, the Florida Duck. If uh, if you're a DragRaceResults.com chat board fan, and uh, Luke Carl was uh, really making some solid laps, especially with that kind of pressure on him. One hundred percent. Obviously, it's it's three rounds to win the runoff, eight cars. Carl Keel never worse than sixteen on the tree, never better than twelve. Never missed the dial in by more than 14 thousandths of a second. Just solid runs in a, in a spread out, drawn out quarter mile race. Uh, I'd take that eight days a week. Uh, he was the deserving winner. He made the best runs throughout the event and, uh, and turned on the wind light, the, the final wind light. Um, the final was interesting and is actually, uh, you saw a couple of the finals like this as, as we go through them. Uh, it was pretty obvious, typical Vegas, typical desert, right? Spread out over the course of the day. It was pretty obvious by the time that the final ran that it was fast, you know, legitimately fast, particularly for the, yes. the gas-powered cars. My impression looking through the results was that um, Carl Keel was a, an alcohol car. Brendan George was a gas car, so moving a little bit more with the, those weather swings. Brendan looked like he was quite a bit quicker than he thought in the final was late. Knowing Brendan, I assume he knew he was late, tried to stop. And ended up just not quite stopping enough. Uh, Carl Keel, I think, was two thousandths under, ran in behind to be further under. But that was a bit of a trend in these late rounds. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's it's quarter mile, so these all these racers don't see quarter mile racing much during the year, uh, or a lot of them don't, and a lot of them never see it until they get to Vegas. So, you know, that closure rate is probably just now starting to get comfortable when the final round comes along. You see quite a bit of breakout especially out of division two racers where you know they're they're typically racing short track all the time they, they never get on the long track but nonetheless uh, carl did a great job and represented division three well and congratulations to him over in the pro category luke hey Jay, let me stop you for a second where's carl from uh carl is from illinois oh Oh, I.O. Okay. Illinois. Home of the best Illinois racers Division in the three. world. Yeah, we, oh. we established that. 
right? Best racers in the world. I, did, I talked about it last week. I did see that, as a matter yeah. of fact, and uh, that was very well done by you. Just um, yet yeah. another illustration of how good the racers from Ohio are. You love Been Ohio overlooking racers. Them for years. Yes, you have. You 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 owed them that segment. So congratulations. I do want to pull racers. a little bit on a, on a more serious note, Jed, on that string that you had mentioned, because <clears throat> for as long as NHRA has been doing this runoff, it, it's been contested on the quarter mile and specific to your point about division two. Um, like I think for the last 20 years, it's fair to say the vast majority of division two representatives rarely, if ever got to compete on the long track for many, this may have been the first time all season, the first time in many years, right. That, that they get to race on the long track. Nowadays, 20 years ago, Division Two was was the, the exception, not the rule. Today, I don't, outside of the racers in Division Six VI and Seven, I don't know how many local bracket races are contested on the quarter mile. Like, is it time for NHRA to consider moving this to eighth mile just because that, that, at least in my mind, that is what the majority of the qualifying races to get to this are actually contested upon? Uh, beyond time for that to happen. I I really think uh, less than 20% of the racers that attend this particular event have much, if any, uh, quarter mile experience. So, you know, I, I do think that it creates a different challenge for the racers that, you know, a lot of racers try to take their car. They're not geared for it. They have to go borrow something or they have to change things in their car. So, it's a it's a challenge for sure. So I think it is beyond time the NHRA gives that some serious consideration. It pains me to agree because I love quarter mile racing. I, I think I prefer quarter mile racing. Um, but to that point, like I just I think the vast majority of racers, the, the vast majority of ET finals, much less the vast majority of of qualifying tracks right the you know where these racers earn the right to be at their division finals much less the the world finals in vegas are by and large i I think an overwhelming majority contested on the eighth mile i i I do think it would be more fitting for this particular runoff to actually be contested on the short track yeah very well said so get that to your uh, inside sources at nhra luke and i'm sure they will give that heavy consideration Oh from, yeah, yeah. Coming from the podcast, I mean they they really. They this is how much right you want to know how much of a pipeline I've got to NHRA, Big Jed. Tell how us. direct that pipeline is. We are. This is Bracket Racing Elite signed up in January to be a full on national event contingency sponsor. We we pay sportsman racers at every single event on the tour, and after uh, a variety of emails and phone calls and correspondence. Um, do you know how many contingency sheets we actually appeared on this season out of the 20 some odd national events? Uh, 53. Two. Oh, so close. Two. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, um, that, that's, that's how great the correspondence is between NHRA and their, their supporting sponsors. Rant over. Mm-hmm. Well, they're probably listening to this show right now. So they'll, I'm you won't sure. even have to tell them they'll, they'll figure it out. So. I'm sure. Over in the pro category, Luke, which is bottom bulb with uh, trans brakes allowed. So it's not my favorite kind of bottom bulb, but uh, it is bottom bulb with trans brakes allowed nonetheless. Um, I picked a racer out of Division One that kind of got in through a loophole, but 
he's a talented, talented racer. And by George, Andy Anderson, old double A, got it done, Luke. Represented Division One, which, again, probably the best racers on earth outside of racers from Ohio. So uh, definitely, uh, definitely a, a talented guy that got in because Dan Casey won both the main event and the race of champions. So um, Andy being runner up in the race of champions was able to, to get into the event that way. And I felt like that's all he needed. He's a, he's a great racer. He went out there and, and got it done, defeated a red light and Steve Lambert from division six in the final. So congrats to Andy Anderson right there. Jed, our two picks actually had to square off in round one in pro. It was Andy Anderson getting a nod in a, in a great race over Tim Butler. So your D1 pick, my D2 pick, Andy gets that win, propels him on through two more rounds later. Uh, he is your 2022 NHRA National Pro Eliminator Champion. Yeah, Andy uh, shot me a message and thanked me for picking him on the podcast. So he's a listener. Thank you, Double A. Appreciate that. And congrats to you. Um, but, uh, he talked about that round one matchup with Butler in his message and said, you know, that's a, that's a true legend in the other lane. So, you know, it, it definitely had him on alert and, uh, and was making sure that he was staying focused. And once he got by him, it just seemed to, to flow very well for him and looked like he was making really solid runs. So congrats to him. Luke in the sportsman category, uh, your pick went to the final, but come up just a little bit short. Uh, sportsman category, by the way, is uh, is true foot brake, and that's uh, as slower cars, but it is true foot brake. So that's one near and dear to me. Jason Hildebrandt out of Division Four got the win over Division One's Paul Northrup, which was your pick, Luke. That's a, that's a pretty good pick. Him going to the final for you. Yeah, and like I said earlier, this was similar to that Super Pro final in which uh, Paul had his worst light of the day. Uh, looked like he tried to drop, but again, was was super fast in both lanes and ended up being a little bit further under on the double breakouts. Congrats to Jason Hildebrandt taking that national championship back home to D4. Luke, I'm, uh, I'm heavily medicated, so I was on mute. I apologize right there for the <laughs> awkward silence. Um, for those that don't know, you'll probably hear it in the intro, but I'm half dead but the other half is here. So my apologies there, but Luke, the motorcycle category, which, you know, I mean, I hate to like brag, but I know motorcycles, uh, motorcycle racing is very near and dear to my heart. And I'm very, very good at uh, picking winners in the motorcycle category and ET motorcycle was won by none other than last year's champion. He goes back to back Gareth Shepard, gets the win over Dalton Markham in that final round to collect the motorcycle championship, Luke. Not only does Gareth Shepard go back-to-back, Big Jed goes back-to-back. You picked Gareth Shepard in 2021. You picked Gareth Shepard in 2022. Ride that horse, Big Jed. Well, Luke, I didn't know if you heard me as I started that part of the segment, but uh, I know motorcycles. So, um, you know, that was... I'm, that's ho-hum. It was just ho-hum. I, I, I always picked the winner in motorcycle category. Look, there was another category contested at this year's world finals, and it is the electric vehicle category. Now, these cars obviously strike a lot of opinion among the bracket racing, sportsman racing world. 
Some people are not for them. Some people love them. We won't get into into our opinions here, but pretty cool for them to to get their own category, which is what a lot of people have said over and over. These racers need their own category and stay out of the naturally aspirated or conventional category. So uh, there's not enough, not nearly enough of them to go around, but there was enough to have uh, a division representative in each division. And uh, it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. If you, if you looked at the data, really neat to see these cars and how they operate on the racetrack. And uh, Craig Merrily got the win out of division seven, I guess, since um, he was a little closer to Vegas, maybe his battery stayed up and charged a little bit better because he didn't have quite as long a ride, but he defeated Luke Alex Fangman, which would be a top 10 name because it's got Fang in it would be a top 10 name anytime I'm announcing, but pretty cool stuff and, uh, and really neat for, for Craig Merrily to be able to hoist that final trophy. Yeah. Just from a, a very casual follower standpoint of the, uh, the electric vehicles in general, I don't know much about electric vehicles. I don't know much about what they're capable of. I, I don't know how many of them are, are, are competing on a regular basis, but I am familiar with two names when it comes to electric vehicles and they are, Craig Merrilies, a man who won this national championship, who uh, a lot of, it seems like everyone that I know around the Northern California area has talked about, man, there's a dude here with a Tesla and he's got it figured out. Like it, it's, it, it, you know, borderline everything from it, it shouldn't be running with us to them. It's impressive. You know, like he, he's, he's, he's got a handle on it. And Danny Hoff, who I think we talked about uh, a couple of episodes ago. Uh, I think, I believe he was your pick, right? <clears throat> to to win here yes uh, Danny's I, gonna, I definitely thought Danny would would get it done Danny's made a big splash in some of the big dollar races I think most notably uh advanced into the semifinals of a 50 or 100 thousand dollar to win SFG race yes um, in his electric vehicle and it is my understanding that that those two are are in cahoots to some extent right like I think Marilee's is is the man that's a little bit ahead in terms of technology is kind of taken the time and, and, and has the, the knowledge to figure this stuff out um, and shared some of that with Danny Hoff. And, and like I say, it's no surprise that those two seem to, to be a little bit ahead of the competition in the case for this, like I, so I went down a rabbit hole, Jed, so we could, we could talk about this. And I don't know how, how closely anyone else studied this, but I just got to thinking like, I want to learn a little bit more about the EV deal. I want to know, how, how good are they? Like people, people talk about how it's such an unfair advantage and the, the handful that I've seen, just like you've mentioned before on the show, Big Jed, like they look like typical streetcars that move around a whole bunch, right? <laughs> well, yeah. just, just the sample size that we got here in Vegas. Let me make the case for, or perhaps against electric vehicles. Craig Merrilies wins this event. Craig Merrilies dialed 1154 in round one. He dialed 1154 in round two. He dialed 1154 in the final round. Okay. Just for comparison's sakes, this is in Las Vegas, quarter mile. It's in the desert. It's in the fall. There's big swings in terms of weather, right? From morning, it, it just, just I, I don't have the Vegas weather from last weekend in front of me, but not uncommon for it to be under 50 degrees when you run at 8 a.m., be 80 plus degrees at 2, 3 o'clock and be 60 degrees in the final at six or seven, right? Just bigger swings than we're used to seeing anywhere but the desert. As evidence of that, your sportsman winner 
Mr. Hildebrandt from Division Four. He swung his dial in nine hundredths of a second over those three rounds of competition. Okay, that's a similar speed car. Again, Craig Merrilies never changed the dial in. Wow. Super Pro winner Carl Keel moved his dial in two hundredths of a second. And again, as I as I mentioned earlier, I assume that's an alcohol combination. That was by far the best or tightest window that any of the super pro or pro cars operated within. Like it looked like it was the best car there. He moved two hundredths of a second. And like I say, Keel wasn't necessarily representative. Brendan George who's super pro runner up over the three rounds. His dial in moved six hundredths of a second. Andy Anderson, your pro winner just moved a hundredth, right? So another really good car. Again, Merrily's in a slower electric vehicle, never changed his dial in. Not only did he not change his dial in, in the three rounds, Craig Merrily's ETs varied from 11.54.8, that's dead on eight, to 11.55.5, that's 15 thousandths over. So his total variance was seven thousandths of a second, okay? I w- and was never more than 15 thousandths of a second off the dial in. In comparison, Hildebrandt, who moved his dial in nine hundredths, had a run where he was five under, had a run where he was one over, right? So he missed the dial in by a lot. Even your super pro winner, Carl Keel, who's who's traveling, who's covering the quarter mile in seven and a half seconds versus Craig Merrily's 11 and a half seconds. Keel moved nine, just nine thousandths of a second on paper, missed the dial in by as much as two thousandths to the fast side where he was in the final 14 thousandths above. Right. So I dug a little bit deeper into this. I'm like, wow, did that thing just make did, did Craig Merrily's 11 second Tesla just make three unbelievable runs? You know, I mean, that's a small sample size. So I zoomed out a little bit more. His those three runs to the eighth mile, he went seven thirty three zero, seven thirty two nine, seven thirty two seven. It moved three thousands. Okay, again we compare that to to Hildebrand. He moved three hundredths to the eighth. Uh, Car, even Carl Keel moved almost two hundredths to the eighth. Again, I zoomed out. I wanted I wanted a little bit bigger sample size. So over the entire event, they were there for three days made three time trials, three elimination runs. Craig Merrily's total variance in six runs going 1150s, 12 thousandths of a second in Las Vegas on the long track. And if you throw out one outlier run, Big Jed, five of the six runs within six thousandths to the quarter. Again, to compare those to the best naturally aspirated cars there, you know, fuel burning cars there. Jason Hildebrandt, your sportsman winner, over his six runs, he moved almost nine hundredths of a second. Carl Keel, in the best dragster there, moved two hundredths of a second. Craig Merrily is in his 1150 EV, 12,000ths of a second. Now, in fairness, as I said before, I don't think that this is necessarily indicative of all electric vehicles. Like Merrily's car was better than most, but it illustrates their potential. And again, I say better than most. Just looking at the numbers, Craig Merrilies and Danny Hoff, way ahead of the field. Hoff moved three thousands to the eighth in four runs, right? But most of the others bounced around, right? So most of the others looked like your typical street car, you know, would move at the very least 200. Some of them moved up to a tenth, right? I guess my takeaway is that it's pretty obvious here in a limited sample size and, and a fairly limited time that, that these have been competing, that there is tremendous potential here, right? I mean, Craig Merrilies hasn't been at this very long and he's got the EV really, really good. Now, what that means as to where or if electronic electric vehicles fit in with the, the conventional machines, 
I, I don't know, but it was eye opening to see like, okay, this can be figured out and when figured out. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily better or significantly better than the technology that we're used to, but it's at the very least on par with it. Yeah, Luke, it's it's truly incredible. I've raced in Vegas and and with stable air in Vegas, and it's still tricky. And for these cars, or this one in particular, Marilise, to to go out and do what he did, uh, truly remarkable and, you know, honestly, a little scary. Um, I'm not sure. I've always heard that you can't do a whole lot with these cars. You can't make a whole lot of adjustments, but starting to hear some things now. heard some off air here just a little bit ago that that says differently. So very interesting to see how these will continue to, I guess, uh, be accepted or not accepted in what we love to do in big money bracket racing and sportsman racing. So, um, you know, the, the thing that I hear a lot or probably the most about these cars is how difficult they are to stage consistently. And then when you see somebody that's able to put up these kind of consistent numbers, um, when they, when the racers are starting to figure that out, uh, that's taking these things to a whole new level. So definitely a little bit on the scary side in terms of what they're capable of from a competitive standpoint. I don't think anyone's doing anything wrong with them, but um, they sure are getting a lot of traction out there, uh, striking again a lot of opinions in uh, in big money bracket racing. So, be interesting to see how that uh, how that continues, which direction that continues to go. And I, I feel like I got a pretty good feeling how it will go. Time will tell. Time will tell. It's I think if you zoom out big picture, like we could have a larger discussion around this, and if maybe it's more of an off season topic. Like I think if we don't just limit this conversation to electric vehicles, if we expand it to technology in general, right. And, and EFI and all that can be done with it. And a lot of the technology that's on something like a, a new Tesla removed from the electric power portion, right. Like some of the things that those vehicles can do, like obviously all that technology is out there. And I think ultimately, if we look at this broadly, the question just becomes, how long are we going to fight this, right? Like at what point we're already competing with what I think the the rest of the world would look at as, as outdated technology. And inevitably some of this is going to infiltrate whether that borders the lines of legality or, or how easily it is for sanctioning bodies or promoters to try to keep up with that, I think is a question. And And at what point do we go from being two decades antiquated to half a century antiquated. And, and at what point do sanctioning bodies or, and or promoters just throw up their hands and go, you know what, anything goes, right? Like, I, I think that's an inevitable conclusion, but I don't know how soon we get there. Yeah, it'd be, uh, that will be a while before we, we get to the anything goes, but we'll see. Um, obviously, they're not going away and uh, they're going to continue to want to participate in big money bracket racing and local bracket racing. So we'll see how that goes. So Luke, that covers the sportsman um, summit series, uh, world championships, national championships, but there was 
some interesting stuff on the NHRA side that happened out in Vegas and no better place to start than this battle in stock, which is getting very exciting. No question with, with the national event in Las Vegas now in the rear view, just two races remain to determine the NHRA Lucas oil series world champions. And in no class, is it over? No one is clinched yet. Right. So we've got the Vegas divisional this weekend, obviously the world finals in Pomona next weekend, just based off of what happened at the national event in Vegas, we have two new leaders. The first, as you mentioned in stock eliminator, your boy, Kuda, Kuda, the puppy, the pup. Kuda takes the lead in stock eliminator after a quarter of final finish at the national event. Uh, overtook Joe Santangelo to take the lead and did it on the strength of a marquee, awesome, incredible head-to-head round one bout with fellow championship contender Brad Burton. And not only did those two hook first round Big Jed, but the the race was everything that you would expect from Jimmy Hidalgo Jr. and Brad Burton. Yeah, Luke, it was everything you'd expect. It was, uh, it wasn't one of those holy cow runs where everybody's double O and dead on, but it was pretty nasty in terms of just a competitive race. Uh, Cooter comes up 21 on the tree. Uh, Brad Burton's 41. So he's obviously a little behind there. We know both cars can run the dial in. Cooter, I guess, kind of outstops Brad, so to speak. Brad goes 12th out under. Cooter sets down to dead eight, and Luke, he took quads. He got to the finish line, zero, 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 zero. So that fourth zero is ten thousandths. The fifth number is hundred thousandths. So he got there in obviously less than a ten thousandth. Uh, that was uh, obviously not trying to do that, but that was pretty impressive all the way around. You know, Cooter, what, what impressed me the most is obviously he was trying to position himself on the ladder in a certain spot. He qualified with a 1076, and that qualified him number two, where he would hook number 35. Obviously, that was a a little bit of just fortune on his part that Brad landed in 35, but he knew he was around there somewhere, and he dialed 1097. So he dialed a little over two-tenths slower in the race than he qualified at. So he played the, played the ladder game well, uh, hooked the opponent that I'm not sure if he was trying to hook him or not, but he hooked the opponent that he needed to hook and, uh, and got the win. So just a heck of a performance by Cooter. I haven't spoken to, to Cooter or Brad on, on that note. Like, I don't know that either of them were necessarily trying to hook the other. My, my guess, again, from the outside is that they may well have both been trying to, to, to position themselves for the same buy run. I think Cooter was trying to go to the pole and ended up second, right? The, the, obviously, the top qualifier gets the first available buy run in Stock Eliminator. Second qualifier gets the second. And that's not a strategy that's outside of Brad Burton's wheelhouse. My assumption is he couldn't go fast enough in Vegas for whatever reason to, to do that. And so what a lot of stock and super stock racers will do if they can't get to the top is shoot for the, um, the fold, if you will, in, in the qualifying sheet, the, the middle being that, uh, like if it's a, say it's a 65 car field, one gets the buy and two would race 34. So if you are 
34, uh, 33, right in that range. Like if you're 33, you run the 65th qualifier who's likely broke or can't run the index. And if you're 34, you run the number two qualifier. And if you win, you can steal their buy run. So my assumption would be Cooter was going for the first or the second available buy. Burton was going for the fold just for the reasons that I just mentioned. And it's as it ended, they both basically achieved those goals and hooked one another, right? Would, would be my assumption of how that turned out. Yeah, but, like everything I said makes zero sense. Everything that you said makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to go with your theory. <laughs> I don't know that I go that far. Like I, I, if I was either of those guys, um, I don't know that I'd necessarily be looking to run the other first round, but I certainly wouldn't shy away from it. Like if that looked like a possibility, like, yeah, let's settle this. I don't, I don't want someone else in the other lane, random Joe to determine my fate. Like if I win, I win. Right. So I, I don't think either of them shied away from it, but I don't know that they came into that qualifying session. Like, Oh, if I do this, I'll, I'll hook Brad or I'll hook Cooter. Maybe. Um, yeah. Well, the, the Tamiflu, I think, made me think that uh, they were trying <laughs> to race one another, which is one of the dumbest damn things that anybody would try to do is race either of those racers. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Cooter advances to the quarterfinal round, takes the lead. He's now got 655 points. As I've said 100 times, 650 is that hollowed ground. You, you get over that. It doesn't guarantee a championship. In, in, historically, cresting 700 guarantees a championship. You get to 650, you ought to win, right? If you put up 650 plus and it doesn't hold up, you just go shake the man or woman's hand that beat you, right? Like 650 is an incredible score. You think that's over eight races, that's averaging 80 plus points a race. That's basically a final round, averaging a final round. That's it's hard to do, right? Cooter gets to that point. He now leads with 655. Joe Santangelo, second place at 644. Brad Burton sits third now at 624. Each of the three can still improve. Uh, specifically, each of the three will earn points or attempt to improve their score uh, at this weekend's Lucas Oil Series event in Las Vegas. Just to go through the, the scenarios, Hidalgo is improving a second round loss. Santangelo and Burton both improving a third round loss. So Cooter's in the driver's seat on paper, right? He's got the most points now and he's improving the, the, the lower, the earlier exit. So at the very least, Cooter Hidalgo is in a position where he controls his own destiny. Now, if he fails to improve this weekend, Santangelo would have to win round three to tie win round four to take the lead. I have no idea who wins the tiebreaker. Uh, I have no idea what Joe Santangelo will be driving. I assume that he will make an appearance. I assume that there's a flight to Vegas in the works, maybe a trip to Vegas in the works. I, I just don't think, I don't think he or anyone would throw away that opportunity. So I, I would expect that he'll be there this weekend. Um, if Hidalgo fails to improve, Santangelo fails to pass him, Burton would have to win round five this weekend to take the lead. Both Hidalgo and Burton can also still improve their scores at Pomona. So I don't really see a scenario. I guess if, if Cooter were to win this weekend or get really deep, I guess he could clinch. Uh, short of that, this likely goes to Pomona. Um, and, and when it does go to Pomona, I think it's worth noting that the tables turn a little bit. There, Brad Burton's improving a second round loss, while Cooter Hidalgo now would have to improve that quarterfinal fifth round loss at Las Vegas to improve. So if while, while this weekend, it looks like Burton's a little bit more behind the eight ball. If we go into Pomona in the same situation, Burton's got a better shot than you might think. 
So not uh, handicapping it per se uh, on the odds, but with with all of those scenarios looming out there, which way are you going? Um, I mean, if you're going to lay odds, Cooter's got to be the favorite just because, like I say, he's got the most points now and, and the, the easiest, quote unquote, easiest road to improve. Um, so you'd give him the edge over the other two, but you're talking about three super talented dudes that all have championship pedigree. Cooter's the only one that hasn't uh, won an NHRA championship to date, but he's been really close. And we all, if you've raced around or with Cooter Hidalgo, like you know that he's capable um, and I feel like they've both got uh, all three have that fire, so to speak. I mean, Burton's got two championships, but he's a few years removed from them. Santangelo's got one, but he has come so close so many times. And like I say, uh, Cooter doesn't have it yet and, and has been close a, a number of times himself. Like, I just I don't think you can handicap it, certainly in terms of, of skill, like momentum right now. Cooter's probably got it. And Burton probably doesn't for as, as hot as he started the season, he struggled a little bit of late. Um, but yeah, outside of just the pure math, like I'd say from that standpoint, Cooter's probably got a 50, 50 chance, if not a little bit better, but as far as handicapping it beyond that, like, I just think too much of those three guys to, to say that one's really got an edge over the other. Yeah, no doubt. All three have ice water in their veins and all three have staged in some very important rounds in their time in this category and, and others. So I uh, can't wait to see how this one plays out. And I know you're going to keep us updated here on the show. Luke, let's move to Superstock. Um, exciting, as always. And this one had a similar element to it uh, with uh, with some serious contenders facing off against one another and Greg Stanfield coming out on top. No question. Uh, the, the lead changed hands in stock eliminator, just like the lead changed hands here late in the season in super stock and similar. I, I would actually argue even more at stake when these two matched up similar to that marquee matchup that we got in round one of stock eliminator and super stock. It happened round four, and that's Pete Dagnolo versus Greg Stanfield. Dagnolo, Dagnolo, by the way, who told me face-to-face, I'm done after St. Louis, and I told you that, and you laughed, and you said, oh, he'll be somewhere else. Good call, Jay. <laughs> he showed up somewhere else. It looks like he was in his own car, uh, so I don't know what the, what the travel situation was to get him from New York to Las Vegas, but he made the trip, and you just couldn't script a more dramatic show down in order to surpass the massive points total that Pete Dagnolo had posted coming into this event, Greg Stanfield had to win round four. Well, as the ladder falls and as they progress, Stanfield gets to round four and who is waiting in the other lane, but Pete Dagnolo head to head, not necessarily the run for the championship. Like it, it didn't eliminate Pete Dagnolo. It didn't clinch it for Greg Stanfield, but obviously that late in the season, um, it's going to go a long, long ways to it. And if Dagnolo wins, he retains the lead. If Sanfield wins, he takes the lead. So literally, the the if not the world championship, the leader, the lead with less than two weeks remaining rests on one round. And just to add a little bit of, of intrigue and drama on top of the drama, this round was scheduled to take place late Saturday evening in Las Vegas. They ran every class except like top dragster and super stock. And I said, well, no, we're going to, we're going to run you guys in the morning. So those two got to sleep on it. Like 
obviously Stanford oh. been there, but I think it's fair to say like it's obviously the biggest round of the season for both of them. Arguably the biggest round of their careers. And you just ah come on back 12 hours later. We'll, we'll try this in the morning, right? That had to be rough. And even after all that, you come into a blind round Sunday morning. If you're Pete Dagnolo, you're 20, take four. I'd take that. I don't care if it's in the dark. I don't care if it's in the morning. I don't care if it's a blind run. It's a back-to-back. That's a nice lap. And it did, did not turn on the wind light. Greg Stanfield, who just has had a penchant for three decades of just coming up big in the biggest spots. He's six. Uh, down some speed to be six thousandths under wins the double breakout um, a heartbreaker for pete d because you you can't do it much better than he did and i got just another feather in the cap of greg stanfield yeah obviously uh, you know this guy's an unbelievable talent and has shown that for multiple decades but luke if you look at his box score i mean obviously it, it's it's always good but here he needed to step up and do something extraordinary and he does just that it's it's you know those are the the people that make it to the top in this sport that can just find that next level anytime they want it and I know anytime they want it's a a little bit of an exaggeration but obviously he knew what he was laying down was pretty solid but it wasn't Pete Diagnolo solid and he steps up and lays down 006 and six thou under and and left Pete no room really and and obviously Pete broke out worse so Greg Stanfield uh, put his name back on the top of the standings and um, I know you got to break down here what what's going to what needs to happen for each of them going forward another very very interesting super stock championship chase yeah it's it's certainly not over yet and we'll, we'll get to that just I, I was hesitant to bring this up, but you framed it so well, Jed. I, I feel like I have to because I, I don't want to frame this as, you know, Greg Stanfield, you know, the swing and bucket hits the middle every now and then. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Greg Stanfield has a penchant to step up when it matters. He didn't make great runs throughout the event. He made a great run when it mattered. Like to that point, that lap that Pete Dagnolo made beside him, 20 take four, it beats any other run Greg Stanfield made in Vegas. It just didn't beat him then when it mattered, right? And so tough break for Pete, but also like you just, you can't heap enough praise on Greg Stanfield. So Greg Stanfield, five world championships can't be wrong, possibly six to come. He goes on to runner up. So he stretches out that lead and man, I say that he didn't put up like the typical Greg Stanfield-esque runs throughout short of that fourth round matchup, but you can't argue with the names that he knocked off. Like if you tell me, all right, you got one shot to win the Superstock World Championship. You got to make the final one race. Okay. Okay. Who, who do I got to run? Oh, just Jimmy DeFrank, Ken Edder, Tom Gaynor, Pete Tagnolo, Justin Lamb. All right. There's 10 world championships right there. Wow. You start off with the Frank five-time champ, get through that in round one. Ken Edder and Tom Gaynor are both multi-time national event winners, super capable. You have the marquee matchup with Dagnolo, the, the, the hottest man in the country, the man that can't do anything wrong this season. And once you get through that, you get such a reprieve, you get to run another five-time world champion, Justin Lamb in the semis. <laughs> get through that round. Uh, and then the, the road finally came to an end for Greg Stanfield alongside another marquee uh, name another 
perennial top 10 finisher, another guy that's going to finish in the top five this season, Tyler Wadarzik. Uh, Wadarzik ends up getting that win. We'll touch a little bit more on Tyler later. As they leave the weekend, Stanfield now leads with 691 points, which is a ridiculous total. Side note, he's obviously your reigning, your defending world champion. A year ago, he had 692. Like, I don't, (laughs) we might have to look back on this because I would imagine maybe Peter Biondo put up something that would trump this. But to accumulate very nearly 1,400 points in a two-year span, like I say, if that's not unprecedented, that's one of those Peter records that nobody's ever going to touch. Like, I don't think anybody else matches that. That's sick. Um, and so, so Stanfield leads and yet with that massive 691 point total, it's not over. He's in the driver's seat, uh, similar to Jimmy Hidalgo Jr. Stanfield controls his own destiny. He can still improve at both remaining events, at least on paper. Now it's a tall order for him to improve. It would stand to reason. He's got a massive points total. So to improve, he's got to go really deep. He would have to win round four at either event, the divisional event or the the world finals to improve. But with that said, he's been past round four six times in the 12 events he staged in this weekend. So I guess it's a 50-50 proposition. Now, Pete Dagnolo can still earn points this weekend, and he's improving a third round loss. So the, the path is there. If Stanfield is unable to improve and no one else passes him, because keep in mind, Ryan McClanahan still has a shot. Wyatt Wagner still has a shot, at least on paper. If Stanfield doesn't improve, if no one else bests that 691 point total, Pete Dagnolo would have to win round four to leapfrog Stanfield. Okay. So that doesn't seem unattainable. Like Pete, I talked about how, how Stanfield's been to, been out of round four, six times a season. Dagnolo's right there with him. Like it seems like better than a 50-50 proposition that he's going to be down to eight cars or less. So I have a feeling this isn't over. It wouldn't shock me if both racers improved. It wouldn't shock me if they met again uh, late in the rounds at the divisional with everything, all the put, all the chips pushed into the table one more time. Fantastic breakdown, Luke. And what an exciting chase uh, among some of the, the best in the game it's uh this is what we want to see as fans and uh, these guys are giving it to us so good luck to all those competitors with a shot and i can't wait to again see how this plays out luke how about some other marquee matchups in vegas why don't you break some of that down for us yeah the the lead changed hands only in stock and super stock but similar to the, the marquee matchups that we talked about between Brad Burton and Jimmy Hidalgo Jr., between Greg Stanfield and Pete Dagnolo, there was one more that I think was notable, and it was in Supercomp. It was in round one of Supercomp, Austin Williams versus Jim Glenn. Those are the two most likely um, championship contenders. They square up in round one. Now, this wasn't quite as dramatic as the others, and maybe not even quite as dramatic as it sounds, because both of those racers, at least on paper, we're still earning points in Las Vegas, but neither one was likely to improve their score. Austin Williams couldn't improve his score. He has three national event wins. You can't do any better than a win, right? So he's improving a win. Good luck with that, Austin. Jim Glenn, similarly, in his three national event claims, he has two wins and a runner-up. So there was actually some points on the table for Jim Glenn, but he had to win the race to see them. So again, not super likely that the outcome of that round one matchup was going to have a significant impact on points. 
Um, but they met up nonetheless. And since they're the, the top two, I thought it was worth noting. It's actually a pretty ugly run with Austin Williams getting the win. Austin looks like he was a little bit slower than he thought. He drops to way above six over. Um, and it was a hard drop in Jim Glenn's defense. Uh, but Jim Glenn gets to the finish line first by 50, 60, something like that to be one thou under. So a bit of a heartbreaker. But again, like, I don't know that 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 necessarily has a direct impact on the championship chase. I was, I'm interested, like, was that pairing random? Like was one was, it doesn't make any sense to try to chase down Austin. Was Austin trying to chase down Jim Glenn again, given the, the, the situation and the, the fact that uh, to improve Jim Glenn had to not just go deep, had to win the race. I doubt that there was any headhunting going on. I think it was just random happenstance that they that they pair up in round one. But it, it's interesting if you're watching live timing. Go, whoa! All right, th- this one gets your attention. So if we zoom out a little bit to the the super comp points chase, Jed, nothing's really changed from last week. Austin Williams still has the lead. Um, is still the the prohibitive favorite. I would say um, there were a couple of potential contenders behind Austin that that bowed out of the race um, last weekend by, by not going deep in the race. One was Michael Holcomb. Um, Michael Hondras, I think, still has a shot on paper, but he lost early at Vegas. That obviously hurt his chances. Um, it really is going to boil down to this weekend's divisional. I think this is one class that's actually likely one way or another that this is decided before we ever get to Pomona. Austin leads. Jim Glenn has the best chance to overtake him. Uh, Jim Glenn would have to win round five at the divisional event this weekend to overtake Austin. If he does that, there's really no, there's no path for Austin to gain any more points. So Jim Glenn would be your likely world champion. Uh, John LaBouche Jr. could win the championship with a win this weekend. Uh, That's assuming it goes seven rounds. If the race goes eight rounds, which is possible in Vegas at the end of the year, if it goes eight rounds, uh, LaBouche would have to make the final. So essentially he has to win round seven to overtake uh, Austin Williams. Landon Stahlbomber, Allison McCone, Michael Hondras, who I talked about uh, a little while ago, they're all there uh, or were there last weekend, and they all have a mathematical chance. It would take a, a combination of deep finishes at Vegas and Pomona for them to overtake Austin, but they're, they're still alive. And then a couple of other names that I that weren't there at the national event that I don't think will be there, but still have a shot on paper include Pat DeBottis, Lee Ream, and Craig Anderson. So um Austin's not completely out of the woods. It is possible that someone passes in this weekend. It's also possible. And, and if I would, if you put my feet to the fire again, Jed, I would say likely that Austin locks this up um, perhaps before we even get to Pomona. Pretty cool stuff. Like to see, you know, several racers with a shot that, that obviously makes the, the chase a little more interesting. Obviously some people have, not quite a stranglehold on it, but uh, certainly a better opportunity. But again, maybe we'll uh, see one of these late race charges to change the standings at the end of the season. Let's move over to Top Dragster, where my dog, literally, my Georgia dog, Jeremy Hancock, um, went out and did what he needed to do in Vegas. Yeah, he makes the trip cross-country to Las Vegas and uh, and bows out in round two, which doesn't sound like a great trip. Like, it was everything that he needed. It was, it, it actually, that that single round victory uh, on the national event ledger actually makes things significantly harder for those behind him. And, and as I talked about before, uh, it was a bit of a long shot for anyone behind him coming in. Uh, but that round two win puts Jeremy at 600. Um, and 600 points... I mentioned earlier the the bars of 650 and 700. Uh, those don't necessarily apply to 
comp top sportsman, top dragster, because they're the few around. So it's harder to accumulate points. 600 looks like it will hold up in top dragster. Um, I believe there are just two other drivers at this point that have a chance to overtake Jeremy Hancock. Uh, that's Aaron Stanfield and um, Al Kenny. Uh, and both of them would have to do really, really well at the final two races, not just win one. I have to go very deep at both of them to overtake the score that Jeremy's got right now. And Jeremy is, um, if not likely, certainly po- the potential is there for him to improve that score at the final two races himself. If he improves at all, it's done. Um, he could put it completely out of reach either this weekend or next. If he were to, if he were not to improve and he's uh, working on a third round loss this weekend or the second round loss next week at Pomona, if he were not, were to not improve at all, uh, Aaron Stanfield has the best shot. And in order to win the championship, then Stanfield would need to win one of the events runner up at the other uh, so a loss before the final for him uh this weekend and it's over for in stanfield uh, al kenny like i said still has a, a mathematical shot as well would have to minimally make it to the semis this weekend to have any shot going into pomona so if you pull up the the semifinal round of top drag extra in vegas and you don't see the name al kenny or aaron stanfield regardless of what jeremy hancock's done that's over Hancock will be your world champion. Um, so not going to bet against those guys and say that this will be over going into Pomona, but it sure looks like your boy, Big Jed, the dogs, go dogs in the driver's seat. Yeah, pulling for my dog. Uh, definitely want to see Jeremy get this done. Um, not a guy that uh, that has done a whole lot of chasing of uh, national points chases. So he's putting everything he's got into this one, and I hope it pays off for him. Uh, we're, we're pulling for you, Jeremy. Luke, so, were there, were there, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just want to, I want to back up on Jimmy Hancock. So this is, this is from one race and family to another, right? This is what I'm doing with my Saturday night, by the way, this is what my life has come to big Jed. I'm, I'm looking through the round by round results from Vegas while watching the live feed of a junior dragster race from Montgomery, Alabama. That was my Saturday night, Jed. Like I'm not too proud to admit that that's, that's, that's life. Right. So Gary and I are sitting there watching and I'm reading Jeremy Hancock gets the win round one and top dragster. And two seconds later, I see Cooper Hancock staging up 2000 miles away for the 10 grand junior dragster race at Montgomery. That's a racing family, big jet. I, I dig that. Yeah, that's really good stuff. And uh, definitely a great family that that's putting a lot into our sport. And I love to see that family do well. I like to see a lot of families do well. Luke. Were there uh, any significant changes in comp super gas or top sportsman? No, I think I don't even want to touch on those until after next weekend, because not much has changed from a week ago or two weeks ago when we talked last talked about those um, comp super gas. And then obviously top sportsman wasn't even contested at the, at the Vegas national events. So we'll just roll that conversation over into next week. Um, all there's potential for drama in all three particular, there will be drama in top sportsmen. Like that's going to be really exciting to watch, but like I said, that'll give us a little bit of content for next week's show. Yeah, no doubt. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the championship chase players in these categories, but what about some of the winners that actually hoisted the Wallies in Vegas? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest story there without question is our man JT. Jeff Taylor wins competition eliminator. And if for those keeping score at home, that's 50. 50 national event wins for that's one huge. Jeff Taylor. Yeah, that's huge. 
Congrats to JT. I think um, it was earlier this season, late last season, Kevin McKenna actually wrote a piece in National Dragster about a handful of of legends, like first ballot Hall of Famers chasing 50. Uh, Edmund Richardson hasn't gotten there yet. I think he only went to a couple of national events this year. Jeff Taylor was another one that we're obviously familiar with that uh, gets number 50 at Vegas. So congrats to him. The aforementioned Tyler Rodarczyk got the win in Superstock, defeated Greg Stanfield in the final. And that completes a near-perfect national event season for one. Tyler Wadarzik, he won Denver. He was the runner-up in St. Louis when the freaking spark plug wire fell off. That's what happened there. It's the only thing that prevented him from having a clean sweep three national event win season. He gets the win in Las Vegas. Uh, He's not in championship contention, but he will finish in the top five, it looks like, in Superstock uh, on the strength of that near-perfect national event season. Leo Glassbrenner looking like he's going to finish the season much the same way that he started it. If you remember, Leo won Stock Eliminator at Pomona and Phoenix back-to-back early in the season. Um, Does does the, the deed again uh, here in the fall with the win in Las Vegas. Ken Mostowich was your winner in Supercomp. Door car, Big Jed. It's been a few years since we saw a door car Supercomp winner. Mostowich got that done. I, 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 have, a, I have an unfair advantage, uh, and we did talk about this, but it's been a few years ago. Can you name the last door car to emerge victorious in Supercomp? Well, uh, I guess... I don't really know this category that well, but I think it was James Conkle. Conk won a couple of points meets in that car. Okay. Did not win a national event. Ah, okay. Well, then uh, the answer to your question is no, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't go back as far as you'd think. It was 20. No, it was last season. 2021, the final event at Atlanta won Chuck Trotter. Your last door car winner. Oh, in, in yeah, I remember Trump. that. Yeah, and that actually, I remember we made a big deal about it at that time because we he did. was the first since Kevin Kleinweber, and it had been like seven, eight years since a, since a, a door car had uh, had won in Supercomp. Mostowich makes it uh, a little over a year uh, separation between those two. Mostowich, not, not your typical door car. That thing is bad news, Big Jen. He went 890 at 185 in Las Vegas. Bro. And he, and he shut the door before he rolled into pre-stage. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's serious business right there, Luke. It'll get it. It'll get it. Moss gets the win in Supercomp. Chris Lewis made the trip cross-country. Chris, Division Two guy, uh, won the national event earlier this year. Bristol, I believe. Uh, does it again in Las Vegas. That cements a top 10 national finish in Supergas for Lewis. And Aaron Stinky. Flying that Canadian flag high in the top dragster winner circle in Vegas, Big Jed. Really good stuff. Congrats to all of those winners. Luke, uh, we'll wrap up this NHRA conversation with um, a little bit, something a little bit odd for us. There was, a, there was an appearance in the top alcohol dragster category that was pretty darn cool. Yeah. Smoke had not just the... The drag, not just the sportsman drag racing community, not just the drag racing community, the motorsports community talking. And we won't dive too deep into the alcohol classes here. We, we, we don't typically, it's not our market. And to be completely honest, I don't completely understand the top alcohol point system. Like, I think that they can actually like wave races, you know, like come to a race, but not earn points. Like, I, I have no idea how that all works, but my understanding is that. Four, yeah, four drivers in each category are still in contention 
for the national championship with just two races remaining. So that's going to have drama in and of its own right. But to your point, Jed, the drama last weekend from Vegas wasn't necessarily points related. It was one Tony Stewart, not only making an appearance in NHRA competition for the first time, but nearly going pole to pole. He came up, what, less than a thousandth of a second short to Matty Payne in the final round of winning in his first NHRA national event. Pretty impressive stuff. But I do have this question for you. I, obviously, Tony Stewart acquitted himself well. Like I, I can't speak to how, how difficult or how easy a, a top alcohol dragster is to drive. And obviously, he had been through, I assume he went to Holly school or something like he'd done something to get his license and, and, and had some coaching. It looked like he was, he acquitted himself well in terms of staging and hitting the tree and, you know, the things that we as racers kind of take for granted. And obviously he's plenty capable of driving, I would assume anything in a straight line like that. How hard can that be after what he's used to? But I do have this question for you with all due respect to both Tony Stewart and the top alcohol dragster category. Do you think there is any other class within NHRA competition in which Tony Stewart or anyone else for that matter could drive to the final round in their very first appearance? Well, obviously, Luke, we're, we're talking about a category where you can outrun people and, and win the race or win each respective round. So that obviously changes things a little bit. And when you got a few bucks in the bank and a lot of great experience around you that that's very impactful in your march towards the final round so okay well um, could he could he have done this in top fuel absolutely pro stop no super comp no no chance stock absolutely no chance yeah i think we're on the same page i I've obviously never driven a top alcohol dragster. In talking to people that have, like, there's a lot of procedural stuff. And, and Tony was in an uh, injected nitro car, right? So my understanding of that is there's a lot of procedural stuff that you got to get right, right? You got to pull this lever and do this and do that. Like, you got to run through a checklist basically each time before you stage. And for for racers that are used to competing a, a different way, like that can be a little bit difficult to overcome at least initially. But the physically active driving the car down the track, like as long as you got the the kahunas to step in it and go 270 miles an hour, um, like you hit the gas and point it. And I, I don't think there's much to it, right? Especially not for someone that's accustomed to to going fast and dealing with pressure, right? To that point, and again, let's take, take nothing away from what Tony Stewart accomplished because he was pretty salty on the tree. Like I don't, it's not something that comes naturally to most people, especially when you're about to go that fast. Um, but to that point, like as, as incredible, uh, driver as Tony Stewart obviously is, I have no doubt that he could navigate the course in a pro stock car and probably be competitive. But my understanding there is like the cadence of the shifts is not a natural thing. Like given the gear ratios and different, it's not like a one, two, three, four, you know, shifting it's like the two, three is really quick and the three, four is really drawn out. And like, I don't think he could just hop in it and be Eric Anders. Right. I have no doubt that he could, but it's like 50 runs in. Right. Sure. And it may be our bias, but there's so much nuance to any of the, the classes that we typically talk about. Right. The, the, the dialing classes, the index classes. Like I, I think if Tony gets in there, like he looks kind of foolish. Like, I mean, initially like no doubt that he could catch on but you know i mean kurt bush ran super gas at one point and just wasn't particularly competitive like as odd as it seemed for tony stewart to make his debut in top alcohol dragster like 
if the goal is to be competitive right off the bat, that's probably the smartest class to start in, given the the resources that he has. Yeah, no doubt about it. And Luke, you you know, anytime you're coming from a category in any type of racing where your goal is to just beat everyone to the finish line, and then you get in one where you have to slow down to win, uh, that's a monumental challenge for for anyone. So I, I get how that uh, those skills just don't transfer to each and every category. But top alcohol dragster be interested next year if if Tony continues to do some racing. I just saw where Lyle Barnett, which is a fan favorite, is going is uh, licensed now in top alcohol dragster. So that category ought to be a lot of little, little bit more fun anyway next year. Yeah, I don't know that Tony's made any kind of announcement. Like, do you expect to see him there next year? Was this a a precursor for a top fuel career? Or was this just a one-time thing and he kind of fades back into ownership? Like, do you have any idea what to expect? Well, I would think definitely leading, this is leading him towards top fuel. Um, You know, I I really obviously have zero idea, but I would think a a man that's raced at the highest level in motorsports and, and accomplished the, the greatest wins in motorsports is not going to settle. Not that top alcohol dragster is a, is a second tier category by any means, but he's not going to settle for stopping short of the pinnacle. And uh, I, I would think at some point it might not be full time, but at some point he will definitely get in uh, in a top fuel dragster. I think that will be really good for our sport. Like I just think he brings a lot of eyeballs with him, whether you're a fan or not. Like I, I think it's hard to argue. That's not a good thing for NHRA drag racing. He brings a lot of eyeballs, Luke, and he definitely brings a lot of Skrillas. Uh, he brings the money, and people will line up to sponsor what Tony Stewart is is putting together. So he'll have well-funded teams, which um, the highest level of drag racing needs dearly. So I uh, can't wait to see uh, what he continues to do from an impact standpoint on uh, on the NHRA. Luke, that wraps up the, the NHRA discussion. Um, we we want to wrap this up with a little bit of discussion about the million. Obviously, there was an announcement made uh, about the event and um, moving, changing venues. Um, you know, it seems natural that it would have to go a little north of Montgomery, which would force a date change as well, so they could get into some better uh, climate or, or you know a better t- time of year climate. So. It'll be interesting to see what they do. And I, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, this is totally off script, but um, I saw um, Capital City Motorsports Park. Their um, their message to the racers today was uh, was pretty solid, pretty stand up. Uh, they said, look, you know, we, we know we've had a few issues. They apologized to the racers, to folk promotions, and um, they they really owned it, which I thought was uh, wonderful. And, uh, and I certainly appreciate that. And there's no doubt in my mind that Ben and Melissa Willis and the folks at Capital City Motorsports Park will correct whatever went wrong and uh, and get that place right back where it belongs. And as I said on the previous podcast, um, in my region, we need Capital City Motorsports Park to be thriving and successful. And I have 100% confidence that uh, that Ben and the crew down there will will do that and continue uh, putting Capital City Motorsports Park uh, at the at the top of the list for people wanting to go race. But Luke, uh, there's a lot of drama as always around the million, and I, I know the folk 
promotions groups trying to limit that and get some consistency in the program, but um, they they definitely have a challenge ahead of them trying to figure out new venues and dates. Yeah, I know we spent basically all of last episode discussing everything million dollar race related, but as we kind of mentioned on the show, we were reacting to a lot of that in real time. And now having a, a week to kind of decompress, I do, I want to play a little game with you, Jed, but, but first let's kind of focus on, you know, you, you mentioned the, the response from Capital City Raceway. Again, a, a, me, a week removed, a little bit of the emotion subsided. As we zoom out from this specific to the million, seemingly the biggest issue plaguing that event in in recent years at least i think it's fair to say three years running now seems to be timing system issues obviously we had the debacle in montgomery in 2020 there were some issues at south georgia in 21 and then again what we went through not necessarily in the in the main event but the 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 follow-up hunter grander um just last weekend in montgomery my question is is this, are these recurring issues due to, I, I feel like it's got to be one of four things. Is it, is it more a lack of proactive proactivity, uh, attention to detail on behalf of the million team, like the promoters? Is it more negligence or, or lack of maintenance on behalf of the racetracks? Is it just bad luck? Or is this actually a more widespread issue? You know, these, these, inherent, um, somewhat um, inconsistent timing system issues? Is it more widespread than we'd like to admit? And a race like the million just puts it under a huge microscope. Like, does this go on more than we think, period? Like, which of those four, I'm sure maybe they all play a role, but which which of the four do you feel like is, is the heavier uh, culprit? Yeah, I think that's a combination of three and four, Luke. I don't think anyone's, uh, I know for a fact that everyone, Capital City Motorsports Park, Folk Promotions, everybody was proactive uh, prior to the million and making sure that they had everything right. And, um, you know, I don't think there's any negligence whatsoever. I think it was a little bit of bad luck. And I think certainly it's a more widespread issue than we would like to admit or understand uh, you know, it. we don't hear much about events with 53 cars in the pits, but we hear a lot about events with 653 cars in the pits. And that certainly is a, is, is a bigger target, and it's, it certainly uh, has more eyes on it. So uh, I think that is in part what we're dealing with here. That, that probably happens at a 50-car at a event. Some, we just don't know it. But nonetheless... It seems like the the timing system can get fatigued. It really does. Obviously, it's not a physical fatigue, but it is an electrical fatigue. And I'm not sure that uh, that we don't need Brockmire to or or any timing system supplier manufacturer to to step up and figure out. Uh, you know, is there a certain number of runs? Is there a is there a, a lifespan of some of this stuff? And we we change parts as part of a regular maintenance program to where it doesn't have this type of impact on events. And you know, my mind's pretty simple, and it's full of Tamiflu right now, so I really really don't know. But I, I, there's got to be something to that. I mean, it really does it really does seem like 
it can just wear out. And, and just to be clear, like the this because this is interesting, but your your theory here is that, or, or let me clarify to to make sure that I understand. Theory being that when you get these mega races where you've got five, six hundred cars and you're making, I don't know, well over a, a thousand runs down the racetrack in a day, you're saying that just that magnitude of runs, like the timing system isn't necessarily built for that or 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 maybe that is um, illuminating problems that wouldn't come up if there were 500 pairs of cars going down the track that day. Yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, it's impacted by the number of times that that said functions have to operate. Um, you know, does the does the top bulb light up the same after after 900 runs that it does after uh, 40 runs? You know, those things that we just don't know. So I, I think there's a maintenance program that can be built and really help keep a lot of these issues from rearing their ugly head. No, that's a really good point. You may have actually answered my, my follow-up question because if we agree, and, and to a large extent we do, that I feel like some of the issues that the, the folks have fought that um, Capital City Motorsports fought at the Million aren't that unique. I mean, are there tracks that I go to where I never question the timing system? Yeah, I can think of a few, right, where I never have. That doesn't mean that they won't have a problem the next time by, but I think in a lot of cases, we go to events where these same issues pop up and it's either easy to sweep them under the rug or certainly not bring light to it because they seem very random or it's just it's not a big enough event, certainly to to get the attention of the masses like the million is. Um, I don't know that it's a, a high, high percentage of events, but I would say that problems like this are definitely more common than we probably like to admit. So I, I think we're in agreement on that end. And if that is the case, Scotty Richardson actually brought this up in, in one of his recent Facebook posts. And, and it was something that got left on the cutting room floor. Like we were at least a year or two ago, we, we were going to dedicate an episode to this and perhaps we will uh, soon and, and get some people more knowledgeable than, than us to come on and speak to it. But I, I think it's very possible that we are reaching or have reached a point in our competition where the technology that we're using to compete um, at least runs parallel. Maybe at times feels like it surpasses the technology of what's timing us, right? Like to where I feel like these issues have been issues for as long as, you know, decades, we couldn't pinpoint it. Like we couldn't pinpoint it with enough confidence until a little bit more recently to say like, Hey, look, my car didn't do this. I didn't do this. Like, this is a problem. Right. Um, I just, I feel like there is a timing system reckoning coming um, in that the, the, like I say, this is a deeper discussion for a different, for a different day. But my understanding is regardless of the timing system manufacturer, like just the bare bones hardware equipment that we're using, like it was developed to run conveyor belts in, in manufacturing facilities, right? It was not meant to, to time things as precisely as we are depending on it being timed. And then I, I'm not smart enough to speak to the software and computer programs, but I know that anything that I have worked with is very outdated in terms of what I'm used to dealing with on a computer. On a computer on a day-to-day -day basis, right? 
Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case with every timing system. And I don't know that that's the answer, but it feels like there is opportunity there for some developer, some businessman to, to take advantage because there's certainly a need, right? As an absolute need. And Luke, again, my mind's very simple, but, you know, I think about some of these places that people spout off, you know, you should go here. They don't ever have trouble. You should go here. They don't ever have trouble. Um, you don't, we don't know everyone's maintenance program. We don't know how often everyone's changing equipment or updating equipment. So, you know, that, uh, that could be part of the, the story as well. But just like Capital City Motorsports Park, that's got an owner that races every opportunity he gets. And, you know, it's 500, it's 600, it's 300, it's tons of cars, it's pro mods blowing things, running over things. I mean, they have, a very diverse offering for the, for the people that love drag racing. And I just have to think it's not those is not that no one cares because those guys work real hard trying to get everything right. I have to think that it's fatigue that they probably see their equipment has to function more than most any track around. And I think stuff's just getting fatigued. I, I really, again, am probably simplifying oversimplifying this, way more so than than the real fix appears but uh i really think that they probably just need some regular maintenance on their facility because they race so darn much and some of these that don't ever seem to have a problem well they're open about every six weeks sometimes some of those tracks hardly ever hardly ever open they just host big events so they got plenty of time to to let their stuff rest I know that's oversimplifying it, but I really think there's something to it. I hadn't really heard it from that perspective, but it's hard to argue with. I, I think you might be onto something. All right, so I want to back to my game. I want to play a little game, Big Jed. Specific to the I million, love games. Obviously. Yeah, we like games. Specific to the million, they announced as we were recording last week's show that it will not res- return to Capital City Motorsports Park in 2023. So my game is where should it go? Where will it go? And just to to tee this up a little bit, it doesn't feel like any of the past host facilities seem likely. It seems like the million will go somewhere new. Okay. Montgomery seems like it's out. Memphis and Atlanta, no more. Huntsville doesn't really seem feasible in this day and age, just from a a room standpoint, nor does Muncie. You know, obviously the, the million went to Muncie one season. Could South Georgia be back on the table? I'll just tee you up with that, Big Jed. Where should the million go in a perfect world? Where would that event best be hosted? Luke, I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball here, but in my mind, that is still Capital City Motorsports Park. Uh, I I know these other venues are, are fantastic. They're all wonderful places, and the million would would be successful at any of them. But as I look at them, you know, it's it's kind of iffy, and you got to move that date up significantly, and it just doesn't seem doesn't seem right. I don't know. The million is just supposed to be there in that third ish week of October, and supposed to be at Capital City. So, I would love to see those two uh, folks, no pun intended, work this out and come back out with a statement that. You know, it was a maybe a knee jerk reaction and that we we have figured some things out and we've developed a plan. 
I know they're a little gun shy because of some past issues, but I really think it's Ben's livelihood. It's Ben Willis's livelihood. He's not going to let the place have a continuous issue. It's going to be corrected by all means necessary. And I think we're going to miss out on, on some fantastic racing uh, by, by changing venues. But nonetheless, if it has to move, Luke, to me, uh, Bristol is, you know, my favorite place. It's, it's the most accommodating venue in terms of what it offers the racer and the, the proximity uh, that it is, that it has for the amount of racers that can get there. Obviously we saw that at the fall fling. Uh, that's, there's an interesting dynamic there that they already host uh, Peter's series. And that could be a, a breach of trust or, uh, you know, a handshake agreement or something along those lines. So not real sure how that would work, but to me, Bristol uh, a month or so earlier is the likely best place to have it, but I'm not even sure that's an option. Luke. Yeah. That, I mean, that's an interesting dilemma because you say Bristol a month or so earlier, like the fling has already announced their dates and that's, that's the fall fling date, right? Um, Most definitely. So it, would be, it would be interesting to see how that could work out. If that could work out. Like I, I, I don't think that Peter Biondo would sign off on that, but I don't, you know, ultimately, I guess that's not his choice. It, it, that would be really, in, that'd be an interesting dynamic. I, I do want to circle back to your initial point. Um, I 100% agree with you actually on Montgomery, which seems kind of wild given the conversation that we had a week ago. Um, it sounds like some of the emotions have died down there. I don't know if there's necessarily contrition on both sides. Like, I don't, I don't know if that thing's fixable. The reason, the reasons multiple that Montgomery is such an incredible option is, and, and I think the reason that this conversation is interesting if Montgomery is off the table is this for 27 years, the million has bounced around facility wise. But it's never left, with the exception of the one trip to Indy slash Muncie, it has never left a pretty tight footprint. Like there was one year in Atlanta, there was one year in South Georgia. Everything else has been between Montgomery, Huntsville, Memphis. I mean, that's all, that's like a, I don't know, two, 300 mile radius. Like that is, and so the, the race has obviously built a tremendous following but very much rooted in that demographic. Now, it doesn't mean that all of the, the million competitors certainly do not come from within that radius, but it's sort of a central location, right? That, so case in point, it's always drawn well from the, the Southeast. It's always drawn well from Texas. I mean, the million gets, gets people from everywhere, but how far could you move that footprint? Like you don't, want to upset the apple cart too much. You just had nearly 700 cars in Montgomery. Like you don't want to move it 500 miles from Montgomery. You, you want everybody that was there to feel like they could come back. Right. Absolutely. And you get the time of year that that race is traditionally held, the benefits of being further South. Um, and the issue is that if Montgomery is off the table, there is not any longer a facility, you could, you could push back on this. You know that area better than I do. There's not another facility in that footprint that could handle this race. I don't think. 
Um, just from no. a room standpoint and, and just facility in general, I, we've talked for years how even at that Montgomery is maybe a little bit questionable. I feel like it's gone tremendously up since Ben and his team took over and it feels like it will continue to improve going forward. Um, so yeah, like if that, if that relationship is not untenable, if that could be fixed, I, I think there's a lot of argument to fix it because I th- there's th- wherever you would move the million has some issues or concerns, right? So back to the the should. If let's just take Montgomery off the table, let's say that 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 relationship could not be mended. You threw out throw out at Bristol. I'll, I'll throw out a few others. The issue is you either get the location. Or you get the facility. Like if you take Montgomery off the table, you you don't get the premier facility within that footprint. I think, I th- so I think of what would be the greatest places to have it first, right? Uh, just in terms of the facility that could easily hold as many cars as you want to park and, you know, is a great racetrack and has a great reputation and on down the line. Like in a perfect world, Norwalk checks all the boxes, right? Summit, Summit Equipment Race, Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park. I think that's right. The issue, geography. Like you can't move it much further from Montgomery than Norwalk and still be on the east side of the country. I am, I, I'm have no doubt that it would be tremendous at Norwalk, but it's it's a different market, right? Um, obviously, with with significant overlap, but you're asking you're asking people to go to a, a whole different side of the country, and the main issue with Norwalk, at least my understanding, is that if Bill Bader Jr. wanted to have a million-dollar race at Norwalk, he'd just put on a million-dollar race at Norwalk, and it would be a huge success. Like, nothing against the folks or the flings or SFG or anybody else. I just don't think Bill is can, is is genuinely entertaining the idea of an outside promoter coming in. Like if he wanted to have that race, he'd do it and he'd probably do it just as well as anybody. So again, I may be wrong, but my interpretation has always been that Norwalk's essentially off the table. If it is, I'd make an argument for um, Worldwide Technology Raceway in St. Louis, the racetrack formerly known as Gateway. It's got the facility, it's got the room. Um, The location is obviously further north than the million has ever been, but it's, um, I don't know, it's probably, it's not as far from Montgomery as you would think. It's probably nine hours from, from Capital City Motorsports Park. And at least in my mind, like, obviously it's a further drive for your true Southeastern guys. Like you get some support from the Carolinas, Florida, things like that to come to Montgomery. You might lose some of that if it's in St. Louis. You draw all the Texas guys. It's not any further from there. It's not untenable for your you know, die hard within that radius, within that footprint, you know, Memphis to St. Louis is like a three hour drive. Um, and, and it's got the facility and, and I feel like St. Louis always had kind of the, the knock of, I guess, for lack of a better term, my impression was that the, the, the track, the staff, the management, whatever was just kind of hard to work with. You just never saw big dollar bracket races there, but Tyler Bohannon and Brian Whitworth have figured it out. They've had a couple of successful races there. Like that could pave the way for, for something like this. Like I, I actually, and just from a, a, a location standpoint, while I said you alienate maybe some of the typical million crowd, that's a really central location that opens up a lot more racers from the North, maybe even more racers from the West. Like I think it would do very well there. 
it'd be different, but I, I think that'd be a good, good, a good option. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think any of the locations you mentioned would be good. You know, obviously, if you get in the right time of year, but it just wouldn't have the same feel. And Luke, no offense to to any geographic footprint or geographic area, but when you look at the the winners list from the million, it is just laced with Florida and Alabama and area racers. Yeah, there's some Texas influence in there, and 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 obviously Iowa got it done this year, but I think it's important for any business to, I guess, uh, try to appeal to their core customer, the customer that has built the business. And any of these locations outside of, of, you know, anything considered in the South is just a stretch for the people that have made this event what it is. And, I, I just you you had a statement about alienating, you know, a lot of the the people that have participated in this event. I, I just feel like it does that, and I I, I just don't like that feel. Um, you know, it's obviously folk promotions event; they can do whatever they want to do. But if anybody was wanting my suggestion, it would be to sit down with Ben Willis in Capital City Motorsports Park and fix it. All these other facilities are absolutely wonderful, but you've got to make major changes to to be able to participate or to be able to uh, facilitate an event at any of those places in terms of date and uh, you know obviously it'll be a first time um it'll be a first time relationship too and those things always have a challenge or two so just not a fan i, I wish it could stay at capital city and and i'm still maintaining hope that it can I wonder if they ever thought about taking it to indy Oh, wait. Yeah, we tried that. Probably not going back to Indy. Probably should. Second week in September. (laughs) Yeah, that that, that might go over well. Yeah, be great. Uh, It's funny. As you were talking to, I thought, I I know that this race has been immensely successful at Memphis at a time where Memphis was a, a national event facility. I know it went to Atlanta one year. But as I think about the facilities that could comfortably hold, this like I, I go to I go to mega tracks right I, I think national event facilities whether it's uh, Norwalk or, or St. Louis or Joliet Bristol Charlotte um, but there's a part of me that like part of the allure the atmosphere the ambiance that has made the OG million what it is is not necessarily doing it at the Taj Mahal racetrack, right? Like it started at Huntsville. It's been at Montgomery forever. Like there is a a feel to that down home Southern racing that I think gets lost, not even so much geographically, but as going to like some four lane racetrack, right? Yeah. Very good point. You know, it does have a, it does have an interesting dynamic outside of a lot of mega events that it, it, you know, it goes to some, you know, kind of local track feel at a track big enough to hold it. It is, it is a very unique uh, combination that they have uh, had for most of their events. So that's a, that's a really good point. And again, there's, there's some of the ones on your list that can offer that, but, Nothing seems to feel right outside of Capital City to me. Uh, before we before we transition over to to Will, like I've got one more for where should it go that I, I think maybe is under consideration, perhaps should be. Like if you can't make it work at Montgomery, what's the closest facility you go to 
the, the, I think is outside the footprint, but not by much. Um, Beach Bend, Raceway Park at Bowling Green. Um, I think it fits the geographic more so than the facility side. And, and I love Bowling Green. It's, it's my favorite racetrack. Um, and the facility is, is awesome. Like it's not, it, it's, it's very, it, I think it fits the million profile that I just talked about in terms of it's not a mega track. It's been around forever. It's been well taken care of. Um, that said, like as, as everything that we bring to the racetrack seems to get bigger by the year, Beach Bend's not. Like there was a time I thought that was a massive facility. I think they would run into a lot of similar constraints than they do at Montgomery. Like that place I think could hold the, anything the million had to offer, but it'd be jam packed. Um, and, and I think to some extent you run into a little bit of the same issues that I'd mentioned with Norwalk, like Bowling Green's got a really good following and what the Jones family does there. Like they have not, they've not necessarily gone out looking for outside promoters. And so I don't know if that's something that would even be entertained. Um, but I think it's another track that you could put on the table. Like I think a million there could and would be tremendously successful. Yep, I agree. I think it could be successful at uh, at those locations. And, you know, Luke, um, we have Alabama International Dragway, which is a quarter-mile facility in Steele, Alabama, which is about an hour northeast of Birmingham. Um, that facility would probably hold it. It could get a little uncomfortable in some areas, but probably would hold it. Um, obviously, you know, you talked about the Texas influence on the event you know it is is ennis a good place obviously that place is huge so is that a good central location to to get people to drive to i think there's a lot of possibilities but i you know again i i know i keep saying this over and over but i i think you have to be real careful because some of these facilities could also be the death sentence um, you know, it could really impact the race in a terrible way. Uh, a lot of things would have to be ironed out. And you just never really know how far people are willing to travel and how many people will attend something like this when you change venues. But what we do know is they will flock to Montgomery, Alabama. So <laughs> uh, knowing that to me just would hold a lot of water in my decision. Right, so we threw out a lot of ideas as to where should it go based on your gut, your instincts. Like, I, I think we're in agreement. It should go to Montgomery. It, will it? And if not, like, what are you, I don't know. I haven't really heard anything. I've got some, I've got some guesses as to where the folks are, are perhaps looking. Uh, forget about where should it go? Where will it go? 2023. You know, I have zero insight. There's been no discussion with me about, um, about any discussions at uh, at facilities, but look, I would have to say Darlington is going to be an option. I would think Jeff Miles is probably reaching out. He was at the event in Montgomery, so I would think he's probably reaching out to the Folk family. Um, I, I, I think you would be cheating yourself if you didn't at least explore the opportunity to go to Bristol, um, Beach Bend has family ownership that has been there for a long, long time. They don't seem to do a lot of rentals. They seem to like to do their own thing. Um, you know, you, you would have a couple of headstrong leaders of the facility and the promotion team that would 
probably at some point seemingly have a crossword. So um, I would think if if you have to move it, to me, Darlington or Bristol are the best options. Yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of I. My sense is that Darlington is on the table, if for no other reason than I just I saw some social media stuff where Jeff Miles was 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 not afraid to to point out some things that that were were not being done the way that he would do it at Montgomery. And yeah, not, not a fan, good. by the way. Right. I was and not a fan of that. So. I, I agree. I, I tend to agree. But and Ben Willis was was quick to lash out. So my thought was either um, there's been some conversation between Darlington and the Folk family, or Ben Willis thought that there was like what well, that was the way that I took that. Um, whether there's there's not necessarily fire where there is smoke, but I, I think there could be something there. We didn't mention Darlington and the shoulds, and that's not from a, a facility standpoint. And I guess geographically like it's not that far away i just feel like you get over into that area and it's it's honestly like to some extent the same way i feel about bristol like bristol i think you overcome it a little bit because it's such a destination racetrack that's to take nothing away from darlington but like there's 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 only one bristol right um i my fear with moving it that far east is that you lose some of that texas crowd and you probably make up for it like you probably pull down more from division one like it's probably fine but again it just it moves it a little bit outside that that footprint that's always worked right but yeah i for whatever reason my sense is that that darlington is very much on the table um where will it go that'd probably be my pick i don't know the relationship. I don't know if it's tenable to go back to South Georgia as, f- as silly as it is to say, because as the crow flies, South Georgia is not that far from Montgomery, but I felt like that was too far Southeast a year ago. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't have a lot of good options. I, I, I think the best option again is, is to return to Montgomery, as you'd said, um, if I'm thinking outside the box a little bit, and again, this isn't what I think should happen. So I think will happen. Um, I, I think Darlington's up there. I think Holly Springs is on the table because it's within that footprint. I don't, I've not been to like the dream team race where they pack 400, 500 cars in there. I don't know where they put them and that would go up a level at the million, but obviously they get them in there. Right. So I, I, I just feel like that's probably on the folks radar. Um, I don't know if it's the place that I would host it if I were them, but I bet it's an option or, or it's, it's being considered. Um, you talked about moving it to, to Texas in my mind, that's a little bit far West. I just, I fear it's the million, right? No matter where you have it, like everyone's going to flock to it. I fear that you lose some of that diehard East coast moving it that far West. And the the thing with moving it all the way to Texas is like you get West of Dallas and you just kind of fall off the face of the earth. Like there's just nothing forever. And it's not to say that you can't draw racers from West of Dallas. They got to come a long, long way and you just can't, you're not going to draw hundreds of racers from West of Dallas. Like I think you would lose more than you gain. Um, but to that point, like I thought too, and, and again, it's probably too far Southwest, but there's some decent facilities in Louisiana that I think could hold that race. You know, whether it was no problems, probably the first that comes to mind, I think Baton Rouge would be a possibility, but again, like probably not the premier of premier facilities. And, and again, outside the geographic footprint, like, uh, there's not a good option outside of Mont- Montgomery fits that race. Um, but if you're asking me like, will um, I think 
Darlington, Montgomery, and uh, and Holly Springs would be the three that, if that was the announcement, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Yeah, Luke, uh, as much as I love Holly Springs, and I'm a, a huge fan of Holly Springs, um, you know, as I looked over the the crowd at the million, there's guys there going 420s and 430s right. on With a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Holly Springs, you have to have you have to be on alert in the cul-de-sac and make sure that cars are getting out of the cul-de-sac and make sure they're getting through the cul-de-sac. So I, I just think that Holly Springs is not quite long enough for the speeds that these cars are running right now. And it would slow the program down having to, to stay on alert like that and, and not let the next pair get after it too soon. So, uh, and, and again, a huge fan of Holly Springs, but I think it, it just doesn't quite offer everything that, that this event needs. All right, Luke, I think that wraps us up. That was a lot of discussion right there. And, uh, I, uh, I think it was all good too. Uh, I, I think I said some stupid stuff, but, um, the Tamiflu didn't totally destroy me. So pretty just excited. To, to be in agreement, like we both agree should be Montgomery. If I had to put a will, yes. I, I don't know. Again, I don't have anything to base this on. I said the favorite Starlington. What about you? Yes. I'd have to say that as well. Um, okay. Uh, seems like the the most logical location, being able to hold it, um, you know, willing ownership and all of that. So, yep, does seem like that would be the choice if it has to leave where it's always going to have been the largest, biggest, and most successful million ever. Um, folk promotions, if you're listening, that's what you just had. So let's get it worked out. I'll be happy to be the mediator. Um, let me get off the Tamiflu and I will sit down between you guys and let's work this thing out. So Luke, that wraps us up. Uh, listeners, thank you so much. We appreciate you tuning in this long. Um, so it was, it was a lot of good discussion and a lot of relevant stuff, which is what we try to bring you every week. But, um, we are done. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you hated what you heard, uh, if I said more stupid stuff than I thought I said, let me hear it. Uh, tell us all about it right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. You can uh, post when we release the show, which in this case will be tomorrow as we're recording Thursday night. And um, you can also send us a private message and producer Mark will snag that up and tell us all about who's ever tearing us out of the frame for something that I said, but nonetheless, reach out to us anytime. We love to hear from you and we, we uh, want to hear what you have to say about anything you've heard on the show or think you should have heard on the show. Luke, what's on the shout list tonight? Shouts to Jeremy and Cooper Hancock. Go dogs. Shouts to Skrillas. Shouts to <laughs> batteries and extension cords and Craig Merrilies and Danny Hoff, electric vehicles. I don't know where that's going, but shouts yes. to you. Shouts to O-H-I-O. And two NHRA Summit Series ET World Championships going back to, not only going back to D3, not only going back to Summit Motorsports Park, Going back to the O-H-I-O, the land of the Buckeyes. Shouts to the Indy Million. That was an experience that those of us who were there will not soon forget. Shouts to you, Big Jed. Let's mend the fences. 
I love the way you way you frame that. Yes. And shouts to Tamiflu. Let's put that back in the medicine cabinet before we try to mend the fences. Yes. Shout out to Tamiflu. And um, just from a from a going down memory road standpoint, Luke, uh, I'm going to throw a shout out to a, a great former supporter of us here on the podcast. Shout out to Manscaped. Uh, they are not uh, they're not part of our team any longer, but doggone, I miss them. All right, guys, that wraps that up. For some some tremendous off air discussion, that's for sure. Yes, yes, we we definitely have a lot of deep discussion about the product, uh, folks. If you're active on Twitter, and why wouldn't you be? I mean, it's just taking over new ownership, and man, it's just a, it's a great place to hang out right now and see what all's happening on that platform. Luke and I are very active on the Twitter. So reach out to us, tag us, add us, whatever you do on Twitter. He is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Hadn't been tagged or added in a little while. Let us know you're listening. Send us something. Eight bucks a month, Big J. We get a little blue check mark. You going to invest in a check mark? Oh, man. I didn't even know anything about the check mark, but uh, eight bucks a month. I think like you it. still have to be approved for the check mark, but now in order to have it, you get to spend eight dollars a month. I think that's the way I was thinking. Maybe that's all tongue in cheek. I don't know. Check marks for sale. You know, I don't need any more blue check marks in my life, so I'm probably gonna hold on to my eight dollars, Luke. But um, if you are interested, I'll split it with you. Go four piece. We'll take it. We'll never miss it out of the podcast uh, income because this baby is a rolling right now. Uh, so, uh, folks. We appreciate you tuning in. Thank you for listening this long. And uh, we can't wait to talk to you real soon about more Sportsman Drag Racing. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer, led by knowledgeable professionals. Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors, and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. 